0: In 1987, uh, my family moved uh, from um, Kankahee, Illinois, which is where I was born, uh, to uh, Waverly, Iowa. I've shared that before. And um, I remember the house uh, very, very well. I was excited about a few things. Uh, one of the most of those was the basketball court uh, out, out front. to where I met my first girlfriend. Amy Bursler was her name. Uh, I remember shooting hoops uh, at night because I could see her bedroom window and I could see her little fingers uh, watching me shoot hoops. So it actually trained me to be a shooter because I wanted to impress Amy. Um, But before there was Instagram or Facebook, um, digital cameras, before you could take a video or a picture with your phone and send it to whoever, um, if I, like, wanted to call my friends back back in Kankakee, and tell them about my house, uh, strangely and oddly enough, uh, what I would have had to do is verbally describe it. And I know that seems strange, right? Like I, I would have had to call them on my landline, okay, that phone number was in a phone book, and I'd have to call my friend and be like, dude, you'll, you'll never believe my house. And so when you when you pull up to it, and you go up the little walkway, it's a split level. So right when you walk in the foyer, kind of a, a nice foyer area, you can go upstairs or downstairs. And I would be like, and hey, dude, check this out. I'm the only bedroom downstairs. So I literally have like my own you know, area down there. And then I would go piece by piece through the house telling my friend about all the things I was excited about, which would most have to do with my room and the basketball hoop and Amy Bursler's house across the street. Uh, what a different age that was. Um, I've been reading Exodus chapter 26 and 27, um, the chapters that describe the tabernacle over and over and over. Um, In anticipation for this evening, we as a staff together praying through uh, what would be the approach. It's very detail-oriented. It's um, at times tough to follow, tough to understand what's going on or what the intention is. And then uh, honestly, uh, all of a sudden, God just absolutely grabbed me. And he told me, um, as audibly as I feel like God can or could, uh, he said, um, Wednesday night, I want you to walk my people through the tabernacle as if there were no phones, as if there were no uh, social media, as if you couldn't take a picture of it. I want you piece by piece uh, to walk my people through it. Um, So instead of reading tonight two chapters worth of text, in Exodus chapter 26 and 27, uh, which you can certainly do on your own time, I'm going to share Exodus 26 and 27. Fair enough? So I'm going to pray for us. Um, So much on my heart in light of all these things. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a journey through The tabernacle in the wilderness. All right? God, please, please come here right now. Please teach us and show us. Please stir our affections for you. Please, right now in these moments, use your words and your structure to best describe to each of us what your intentions were in having your people make a tabernacle in the wilderness. in your great and holy name. Amen. So imagine you're a 14-year-old, guy or girl, depending on your gender now. You don't have to act like you're a different gender. And you you wake up in the morning and um, you're super far away because, you know, you're a part of the Israelites. And so there's like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. And they're all in tents in the wilderness. So you're in a tent that's way in the back and the tent next to you woke you up. And so you you kind of woke up sternly, a little bit upset. You know, you, you walked outside and you noticed that there were some kids playing from the other tent, some younger kids, and being 14 that you are, you got super upset with them. And, uh, and so then you, you notice some commotion that was like way, way, way away in, in the center part of the camp. And so out of curiosity, because you're 14 and you're uh, somewhat curious and, and um, ambitious, you decided to take a stroll. And so you make your way literally to the center of the entire Israelite camp. Again, you look around you in every which way, left, right, east, west, south, like all the directions you see, tents everywhere. And you come upon, all of a sudden, a, a white, it looks like a, a curtain almost. And you come up on it and you start walking around it. And the first thing that strikes you about this tent that's in the center of the camp is how big it is. Because you're good at math and cubits, you start measuring out from the base of your elbow to the tip of your middle finger how many cubits this outer uh, tent is, this outer wall. And you notice because you're good at math and very good at you know lowering your elbow and measuring it out that it's 150 now in our terms uh, feet long, okay by 75 ish feet. Wide. So this is a big structure. Uh, for those of you that ever played football, I mean, 150 feet, quick math, right, is, is half of a football field, right? So this is this is a massive, massive structure. And the one thing that you really notice about this whole structure is that you can't see over top of it. In fact, again, because you're good at math and because you carry an Israelite ruler in your pocket, you measure it out and you find that it's seven and a half Feet tall. Well, you're 14, about five four, just out of the shower or the river, as it were, and um, and you notice, like, man, I, I wish I wish I could see over top of that. What you can see coming just above the seven and a half foot outer wall is smoke that's rising. And so you're curious. You're wondering what the smoke's about because you're a guy. You like fire, and so you know you're wondering if there's a fire or if the Israelite fire trucks are going to be coming to the rescue or what's going on. But you keep walking around. You also notice that on the outside of these things, there um, are brass poles, 20 on a side, that are holding up this curtain. And on the top of those brass poles are little little holes or ringlets so that some uh, twine could be tied to hold up this massive structure on the outside. And then just as you come around the corner to where you're now looking at the east side of this massive structure, you notice a, an opening. Uh, this is uh, the, the opening that, that you've heard about. You, you know that uh, some animals come through here and some people come through here. And the thing that you notice is, is that this is the only opening. There's not another opening around this whole structure. This is it. And so, again, doing your measurements, you, you, you find it to be 30 feet wide. The other thing that you notice is there is a super colorful uh, twine that makes up this, uh, this opening or this entrance, if you will. And, uh, and just because the nature of our time, um, you make your way out of curiosity just on the inside of this entrance. And now all of a sudden, your mind starts to wander. Your eyes are beholding things that you've never seen before. Right in front of you is a seven and a half foot square by four and a fourth quarter foot tall massive altar. And, and that's where this, this smoke is billowing. In fact, now in a moment of technicality, the priest uh, were recorded to never allow this fire to stop burning because there was always a need for sacrifice. And so you stand back as you watch. You literally are watching live as a 14-year-old. Imagine how this would have affected you. You're watching a live sacrifice. And on this altar with uh, some of the tools that were used, a horn on each corner, you watch a, uh, an animal be slain and then you watch what you surmise as a priest take the blood of the sacrifice and pour it into the four horns around this massive brazen altar. You're intrigued. You're like, man, what's, what's going on here? How, how does all this work or function or should we really be killing animals? This, this seems a little bit strange, right? And so you're kind of taking the whole scene in. You, you notice that inside the structure... There's quite a few people, there's some animals, and just off in the distance, on the other side that you walked in, there's another tent-looking structure, but just before there, there, there's like a little bowl, and because you're thirsty, you you go up to it, and like a dog and a 14-year-old would, you put your face in it and try to start lapping it up. And just to your right, a priest takes his back hand and smacks you right across your chin, thus humbling you, right? And you watch what the priest does then with uh, the labor. Is he, uh, he takes his hands that were still bloodied from helping with the sacrifice and he washes them off. And so you start to get curious. You're like, man, I thought this was drinking water, but uh, this priest certainly didn't, didn't treat it as drinking water. And then you watch as some other, some other priests come up as well. Well, interestingly enough, because you're a curious young lad, you start asking the priest some questions. Here's what the priest fills you in on. Hey, uh, son, you see that brazen altar back there? It's the most used piece in this entire court, which is uh, what's the outer piece of the tent's called, the court. Uh, every single day, morning and evening, there um, is sacrifice being made, and often even throughout the day on that on that brazen altar it 's the most used piece, son, in this whole structure and then son, just before uh, the priest, which any Levitical priest could enter um, the holy place or just inside of the tent, every time I have to wash my hands, he says as a means of cleansing myself, and so you thank the priest for the helpful information. And then you're so struck by this tent structure. I mean, your tent looks nothing like this. The the tent in your camp, you know, it's like super small, kind of, you know, you're thinking how you can score this as your personal tent, you know? Like, hey, I'll trade you straight up here. You know, my tent for yours. And, And so you start to walk around this thing and again doing measurements. You can tell that it sits a lot higher then the outer wall, the outer wall, remember, was seven and a half feet tall. This you notice by your a quick observations of where the solstice of the sun is hitting and shadows are creating, that it's 15 foot tall, almost uh, exactly double of the outer wall, interestingly enough. You start to kind of pace it off, and you find that this inner tent is, uh, is 45 feet. I mean, it's a pretty significant tent by 15 wide and 15 tall. Well, being the curious lad that you are, you poke your head just inside of the curtain that was held up by five pillars on the outside of this tent. And there you see some stunning things, some things that you have never, ever, ever seen before. And because that same priest who you had built a relationship with earlier was interested in your curiosity, he, although he definitely shouldn't have, Allows you to come on in. And then he starts to describe what's going on in this holy place. Uh, The first thing that you notice is gold everywhere. In fact, you look to your right and to your left and you see your reflection. The priest starts to tell you that it was made, is this tent, of acacia wood. And that acacia wood is caked or covered in pure gold. And then you ask him, just like you always do out of curiosity, so why... And where did we get gold from? And especially this much. Because you're thinking about your family. You're like, I don't, I don't think we have this much gold. And the priest tells you that this came from the people. The free will offering of the people. We, we scored it in Egypt, he says in priest terms. We scored it. And so you're really, really interested. You're looking to your left and to your right. And you're like, man, this is, like I, this is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. And then as you continue to make your way in... Just to the left, uh, you see um, what looks like mama's massive candlestick, you know, that she got at Pottery Barn or something, right? And there's there's seven pieces of candle. You also notice that this is the only thing that's providing light in this holy place. In fact, it's pretty dark. And so you start asking the priest about what's covering you. And he goes on to talk about how there's four coverings to this 45 foot long by 15 foot wide and 15 foot tall structure. Um, He says that on the outside of this, it's like the equivalent, and there's many different interpretations of this, but even a tanned seal skin or a tanned animal skin of some kind, and what begins to work down is goat hair, and then finally the the inner covering of the four is uh, a very decorative, uh, um, you, you know, scarlet and red and purple and white mixture of beautiful beautiful colored twine well what happens is it protects says the priest all of the insides of this from the elements And he says of course like you know the elements are pretty dicey here in the wilderness and you agree and then you look to the right after seeing the menorah you look to your right and over here um, because you're hungry you ask the priest if you can have a piece of bread uh, you ask him if there's any butter around. Um, you get specific and you ask him if there's Texas Roadhouse butter. Um, he seems confused. Ask what Texas Roadhouse is. You then respond, never mind. And he describes, he describes what the bread is. He says, so each of these 12 loaves, some represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, this is what we call the bread of the presence. God asked us, to make all of this, as a sign or symbol of his provision for us. And then just before you start to make an errant move, you smell something nice. And so you you walk closer to it, and it's like a little billowing um, smoke. And you see just before another curtain in front of you, this like incense, like magical pixie dust that's happening right in front of you. And so the priest describes, hey, this is, this is the altar of incense that's representing God's appeasement and all the happenings. Then you ask the priest, who made all of this? And the priest um, steps back for a second, almost as if to say, I love your question. And then interestingly enough, to your surprise, the priest says, God was the architect of this house. And so you're a little bit puzzled because you're like, okay, I've seen God in fire and smoke and God certainly led us and my family through the sea, but how is God the architect? I didn't see his hand hammering or fashioning gold. And the priest tells you, God told Moses and Moses told us exactly, precisely how to make this. I mean, down to the length, the cubit, the rings being silver, the brass spokes, all of it. He told us exactly how to make it. And that's how we did it. And so finally, just as your journey is about to end, you look in front of you. You kind of look at the priest, and he looks back at you, and you go, well, what's in there? And uh, he gets a little bit of a face of fear. Um... He doesn't quite know how to answer your question. In fact, he grabs your hand and tells you to scoot back a little bit. And he says, son, what's in that 15 by 15 cubed room is the Ark of the Covenant. And so you say, well, who gets to go in there? And the priest says, well, there's only one person on one day that ever goes in there. Son, every Yom Kippur, every day of atonement, once a year, the high priest will go in there in the presence of God where God's voice resides between the cherubim and he will interact with God and make sacrifice on all of our behalf for our sins. And then he leans down and whispers, son, it's time to go. And you mosey on out and you slip through the curtain back in the outer court seeing the animals and there again is the water bucket, and you see the altar, the brazen altar, and you mosey right on in this beautiful, beautiful place. Down to the detail. There are 50 chapters in the Bible that talk about the tabernacle, 50 chapters. Apparently, the construction, setup, structure of the tabernacle is of utmost importance. Would you agree? 50 chapters, 50 chapters. And last week we saw God say over and over and over, make it exactly how I say. So um, now that you have a little bit of an image, let me help just a little, okay? A cue that virtual tour, if you could, Andrew, the video. Okay, this is kind of coming in here from Outside of the camp of the Israelites, literally down to the left, to the right, to the north, and to the south of this valley, tents everywhere. You can see the little speckles. All those represent a tent, okay? And then there we are at the tabernacle, and you can see all the folks gathered around it. You can see some of the pieces, and we'll slow this down here in a second. I just want to give you an image of this. And then therein lies that 45 foot by 15 by 15 foot structure. The Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, there on your left. Right now we're in the holy place, kind of the outward section. And a little bit of a virtual tour ends. So put up that first picture if you can, Andrew. That's a pretty solid rendition. I mean, look at how many tents we have. Okay, and again, I I think you're all with me. Like Google Earth didn't take this image, like, you know, hundreds of years ago. Okay. Somebody's like, whoa, Google is amazing, you know. Um, (laughs) There's even like a time travel uh, button right um, but think about it, hundreds and hundreds of like I never was a Boy Scout praise God but some of you have been <laughs> but some of you have been and so you've been on that trip you've been on that trip right where there's just a few of you Well, like times that by hundreds of thousands of people and and remember like God's providing your water and your food okay so our next picture here this will help us a little bit visually So like I mentioned, this structure sits literally in the the center, obviously very purposefully, of the entire camp. Okay, so there you can see the white linen curtain all the way around, seven and a half foot tall, 75 by 150 feet. You can see uh, the gate right there as it opens. Next picture. A little bit of a closer piece. You'll see the brazen altar uh, there is the very first thing that you see. Isn't that interesting? You just enter the gate... And literally what's right in front of you uh, is the brazen altar. Because not only was it the most used piece uh, in the whole structure, but also sacrifice. Listen, sacrifice had to be made before any other steps could be taken. Okay? Uh, In this next slide, you'll see uh, the inside. This is what I was trying to describe inside the holy place. I mean, gold on both sides of you. I mean, think about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago making this. The detail that God asked and demanded for. And then the people being able to do it. Um, In fact, it's so interesting, and I think many of you guys understand this. This whole structure had to be mobile. Because as the Israelites would move, uh, the priestly order, and there was a couple families that were in charge of it, they would have to pack up camp and then carry all of these things to the next setting. That's why on the Ark of the Covenant, even the bread of the presence table, there were rings with poles that slid through them so that people could pick them up and carry them. Okay? So there on the left, you see uh, the candlestick. On the right, you see the bread of the presence. And just in front of the veil is the altar of incense. The veil, uh, that far piece of a drapery that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. Next uh, slide, if you can. Beautiful. Seriously, like just just imagine if right now us were was charged with making this. You know what I'm saying? Like first of all, who would who would we point? Who would be the point person for this? You know? Yeah, uh, God. You know, God was like, "Hey, Methuselah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a structure that's worth about 60 million. Okay? Can you guys go ahead and hop to it? You know? We, I mean, we'd be fetching. We're like, God, isn't our garage sealer floor and black ceiling enough for you? You know? Um, now, I want to take you back to creation. God creates the world, the earth, light and darkness in how many days? Trick question, right? Six days he creates. On the seventh he rests. Had an amazing conversation today with a good buddy and a friend I'm discipling. And we are describing the, the purpose of God's creation And the purpose of God creating, his intention in creating, was to make people in his own image that would glorify him. So he makes them for his own glory. That's his intention. In fact, all of creation, he intends for his glory. The beautiful picture of the Garden of Eden is man and woman, man and woman, naked. Okay? Amen, right? Okay? Right? some of you are confused by that No, that, that, that was a great thing okay? man and women naked no shame no condemnation and listen with God in fact so much so that the scripture says that, that God literally takes Adam and puts him in the garden uh, the word there is, is took Like he, it gives this image like God's like hey listen you go ahead and sit right there and he just like takes his hand and he drops Adam like with a God helicopter right in the garden of Eden you know Things get so intimate, right, that when Adam falls asleep, God pulls a rib out of him, right? Some of you guys would be glad to give up a rib, pulls a rib out of him, and then makes the woman. So from dust and ribs, he makes man and woman. So here is the garden. Naked, unashamed, no regret, no condemnation with God. Isn't it interesting then how powerful sin is. That we go from a garden where man and woman nakedly are dwelling with God to all of a sudden man has to build this ornate structure to get in the presence of a holy God. This is just a glimpse of the power of sin. That creation, the beautiful connection that man and God would have, that sin would have to cause a beautiful structure like this to create proximity between God and man. Well, then thankfully, uh, there is this passage in John's Gospel that I want to point your attention to. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, here's what the scripture says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, you're like, Mark, this is, this is a really nice verse. Thanks so much for bringing it to us. Uh, it's really pleasant. The Word dwelt there. Listen to this. The Hebrew word for dwelt is skiano. Everyone say it with me. Come on. Skiano. In John chapter 1, we see the Hebrew word skiano. And you know what that Hebrew word means? It means tabernacle. It literally, in its base Hebraic form, means tent and tabernacle. So speaking about Jesus, here's what John says. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, who Jesus is literally connects with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before where an ornate, creative, very down-to-the-detail, golden structure would have to be built and then would have to be mobile so that it can house the very presence of God. And in that Ark of Covenant would sit uh, the the covenant itself, the Ten Commandments, ten on one side, ten on the other, representation of the covenant that both God and man shared all of that. And God sends His Son, Jesus, in the flesh, incarnates His Son, and because His Son takes on flesh, he tabernacles with his people. He sets up camp with his people. Listen, he dwells among his people. The Christmas song is Emmanuel, God with us, right? This is what Jesus does. So all of these things caused me to wonder how God and why God would structure something so specific to then connect with hundreds of And hundreds of years later, Um, it's because that's what God does. Uh, God does everything intentionally. God, uh, from the beginning of time until where you and I sit now, He uh, has not done anything that has not been intentional, leading to His glory. Um, So here's what some scriptures tell us. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, the scripture begins by saying, Enter by the narrow gate. Isn't it interesting that at the structure of the tabernacle that there was only one entrance? In fact, later in Scripture, we see specifically in Numbers chapter 3, we see this image that if you desire to get in another way, uh, that death was even crouching at your door. So if you want to go around, if you want to try to sneak underneath, if you're a crafty little five-year-old and want to play around in the tent, uh, God's communicating, uh, we don't play with this. Let me say it another way you don't play with my presence. The worship of God is not to be toyed with. The worship of a creator is not to be tweaked, to grab emotionalism out of humans. The worship of God is to be focused on God himself and alone. And any piece of messing, distorting, distracting from that will equal death. That's why the scripture says there is a narrow gate. In this case, in the structure of the temple, it was Thirty feet of that, 45 uh, feet wide, and there was only one entrance, often seen both on one side, where you could kind of get around this thing, get animals in, get the sacrifice in, get the people in, the the priests in, there's only one gate, and I want to continue to remind you what we believe firmly here in this church, is there is only one way to communion with God, there's only one. Okay? Many people have said that there are others, there's other religions, there's other doctrines, there's other ways, there's other open gaps, there's other holes in the system. I'm telling you, there is one way. There is a narrow gate, and that gate is Jesus. And he goes on to say, does Jesus, for the gate is wide, back to the last verse, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. I was uh, talking with Jared about this, and the way I described it was, It is so easy to indulge. It's so easy just to indulge because it's right there on a silver platter. And maybe said another way, it's so easy to fall down. So easy. You guys have seen this, you know this. The way to destruction is a very, very, very wide entrance. And um, some of you have spent a good portion of your life sprinting through it. Marred by community that were running with you. Shaken by shame that had gripped your heart. I was uh, talking with that same friend today and I said, the thing that I love about following Jesus is I'm always drawn to the exception. So every other world religion that says that I must merit the love of God, the one exception is the love of God who loved us first and then sent his son on our behalf and that through Christ then we can be, it's the only exception. Everything else is I got to earn God's love. If I'm good enough, then God will bless me with concubines in heavens. But this gospel says no. There's a narrow gate. Wide is the path that leads to self-enlightenment, self-encouragement. Wide is that path. Narrow, narrow is the gate that glorifies one God. This verse goes on to say, Listen, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Uh, I got chastised in my previous church for saying that the gospel was hard. Um, an elder one time sat me down and they said, Mark, you need to stop saying that because the gospel is easy. And uh, I know I've, I've always been a bit bold and I looked at that elder in the face and I said, um, I wanna change your language a little bit I don't believe the gospel is easy. I believe the gospel is simple. And there's a difference. And I said, let me explain. When Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me, I don't hear that and say easy. I don't hear that command, deny myself, take up my cross and follow him, easy. What I do hear is simple. Jesus makes it clear. There's no ambiguity. It's through me. That's it. And so the way to life then is simple, not easy. And so for those of you guys that are in trial right now, you feel like you're following God, you feel like you're listening to God's voice, and you find the, the difficulty that even comes with that. I was talking with a brother who's getting ready to, uh, wrestling with a call to plant a church. And I mean, planting a church, that's hard. Like, gospel work is hard stuff. Nowhere does God say, hey, hey check here if you like me. And then if, if you do, like, I'm going to make it easy for you. No. It, it, but, but what does that direction lead to? It leads to Life. So for those of you guys that are sprinting through uh, join hands with others through the wide gate, I'm just telling you, if you're trying to get in another way, if you're trying to go in the back because you feel like that will get you closer to the Holy of Holies, uh, all of those ways will lead to death. There is one gate, only one. That's right. And so then when you uh, find your way through that, that beautiful gate, here's what the next text tells us. Uh, as you look at the brazen altar there, check this out. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see, it's not just that Jesus is the gate, it's that Jesus is the sacrifice. So when Jesus uh, incarnates, when he leaves heaven, takes on the flesh, comes on the earth, okay, all of a sudden, is he the gate, the only way uh, through the entrance of the tabernacle? Yes, he came to the tabernacle in us and he places himself on the brazen altar. He becomes the sacrifice, the perfect Passover lamb, the innocent for the guilty. Any sacrifice that was put on that brazen altar had to be unblemished, the innocent for the guilty. So as scripture says in Romans, Hebrews, and the like, when Jesus, once for all, gets put on that brazen altar, one innocent for all the guilty... Every single one who's ever been born finds themselves guilty. One innocent God-man on that brazen altar, the perfect Passover lamb dies. And because of his sacrifice, then you can continue to make your way through the tabernacle, as it were. Scripture goes on to say this. uh, Next slide, in Hebrews chapter 10 let us draw near with a true heart. We saw this last week in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, when you get to that that basin of water, it's not your blood. Christ's blood has been spilt. And because of that spilt blood, then all of a sudden, that sacrifice of that high priest means all of us have been sprinkled clean. So he's not just the gate. He's not just the entrance. He's not just the sacrifice. He's also the living water. He's the water that purifies. He's the water that sanctifies. He's the water that redeems. He's the water that if you drink, like he told the woman, you'll never be thirsty again. That's the water that Christ is. So it's interesting, isn't it, to you? That Christ doesn't just represent these ancient ideas, but he embodies them. In fact, Scripture says he fulfills them so when the scripture says he fulfills the law and the prophets like all of these things are embodied in christ and then look at this next text so beautiful check this out in luke chapter 1 in the in, in the prophecy of zechariah and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun, uh, sunrise shall visit to on high from on high to give light to those who sin in darkness, in the shadow of death. In talking about John the Baptist and what Christ would do to give light to the darkness. Uh, in First John, the scripture describes God as light. And so as you make your way into the holy place and you see the menorah standing there, you are again reminded that God and Christ just isn't the gate, just isn't the sacrifice, just isn't the water, but he is also 100% the light, 100%. The only light in a very, very dark place. And as we were talking through it, like the image a, a teenager would have been drawn to is, man, this is such a dark place and there stands. The light. And then you look to your right, and there you see the bread of the presence. And I mean, I can't help but imagine the night when Jesus breaks the bread. And here's what he says. A beautiful text. Next slide. In Mark chapter 14, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Look at this. Take, this is my body. So these 12 loaves that have been sitting there as the Israelites traveled through and then ultimately a, a temple would be built and even some of the bread of the presence would be dealt with in there. And Jesus takes this very symbolic bread and he says, this is my body, right? And then just as you pass the altar of incense, which certainly represents so many facets, I wanna turn your attention to this last text. I am the door, Jesus says. So when you was a teenager you asked the priest what was behind there. And he told you only one person could go in there on one day of the year on Yom Kippur. And then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus would say, I am the door. And for those of you guys who know the story, you know that as Jesus dies on the cross, the scripture says that the curtain, the veil, very thick piece of fabric was torn in two. And so Jesus, not just saying that the gate is narrow, but literally the veil rips in half and Jesus provides by himself, for himself in the glory of his father, every facet of the tabernacle and that last facet breaks open wide what men and women through him could experience again, the presence of God. It had been, as it were, lost since the garden in the proximity of what, God had made with Adam and Eve, but through Christ regained. He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I stand before you tonight overwhelmingly thankful that what was lost in the garden that what man and woman had to put on and clothes because of shame, that what man had to build to be in the presence of God, I now, through Christ, have proximity with the one true King. Not by any piece of myself, but He is the gate, and He is the sacrifice, and He is the water, and He is the light. And he is the bread, and he is the door. He is literally every facet of every journey that every one of these priests would ever take as the high priest and the sacrifice himself, he embodies so that the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, the voice of God that sits between the cherubim would dwell in you, listen, would tabernacle in you the Spirit of God would find a dwelling in you. This very ornate piece of treasure that God will construct and architect as it were, He has now put in His sovereignty, grace, and love inside of you, my friends. Just think and sit on that reality for a second. That's our God. That's the depth of His love. That's the depth of His heart. I'm going to do everything that it takes to regain proximity with my people. And he didn't just say he would do it, he did it. And I, for one, am a benefactor. And maybe some of you as well. Um, some of you are running hard in a very wide gate of destruction. and I want you to hear this from my heart, I have tremendous compassion for you. I know it's very foggy. I know you're trying to find yourself. I know it's provided some semblance of relationship, and I know you need that. But when you're alone at night, and your hands are in your hair again, And you're wondering what all this is about. I just want to encourage you with one thing. And you can take it it or leave it. You can believe it or not. is there is only one door. There's only one. And he has provided a way through the narrowness of it. To receive grace. To receive love. And ultimately to have relationship. The thing that you most want he's provided. And so if that's you tonight. I just want to read this promise over you if anyone enters by me what does the scripture say what does the scripture say he will be saved listen there's no like there's no bullet points underneath this there's no and then you have to do this and you have to do this if anyone enters through Christ he will bless you with the spirit dwell tabernacle within you and save you for those of you that have taken all of these things for granted those of you that that have come in here crusty, complacent, distant, listen, could you just sit back with me for a second again and see how the great architect has even allowed you to sit in this room right now? Could you just be reminded for a second of the work that he's done? So I think the response of what happens in light of all of this is I believe some people in this room will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And I believe a whole bunch of others will cry out to the Lord who saved them and say, please don't let me take this for granted. That you are the gate, the sacrifice, the water, the light, the bread, and the door. Father, I'm thankful tonight that you're every facet, every piece that we need. I pray in every piece of us that there would not be one iota of our heart that would take you for granted. I pray that what stirs in our hearts right now is a true, genuine sense of reverence, respect, and gratitude. And God, mostly tonight, I'm thankful that in your sovereignty that the sacrifice of one Passover lamb and your son would be completely enough for me and for my friends here. So right now, in this moment, would you completely cover us with your love, with your grace? Thank you, God, so much. Let's stand and respond, church. Come on.